This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio for oh, I didn't I didn't roll my R's then. Let me try that again. Radio, there we go <laughs> for episode number one one eight five, and it is entitled today. Uh, I think we're going to call it JJ since I am Rob Jan, and we have another J coming in today, and uh, we will call the podcast title today Dead Pod 2, because the second part of the show will be devoted to Deadpool, of course. All right. Now, uh, we have Jay Christoph in the studio today, who has a new book. We know him as the co-author with Amy Kaufman of the best-selling science fiction series The Illuminae Files. We have discussed that before on the show. And he also created the Lotus War steampunk trilogy and the epic fantasy saga The Never Night Chronicles. And in the works is a new trilogy with Amy tentatively entitled Andromeda. And he is here to talk about his new book and it is entitled... Well, I'll tell you, it's from Alan and Unwin... It's entitled Life L1K3, which is, as I found, Jay, your PayPal password, and thank you very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably change that. You should change that, but not until we've all had a chance to <laughs> take all of your funds. Throw everything that I'm worth, yeah. That's it. That's probably a considerable amount by now, I should hope, because you were a best-selling author. Yeah, which is pretty strange. It's a little more glamorous uh, sounding than it is in real life, but yeah, we've been very lucky so far. <laughs> uh, I always find that um, authors uh, do a far better job of blurbing their book than I do, so please blurb away. Okay, so Lifelike is set in a post-collapse United States. Uh, it's kind of a mashup between Mad Max Fury Road, uh, a little bit of X-Men, a little bit of Romeo and Juliet and a little bit of Blade Runner. So it's kind of a post-collapse future with androids and it centers on a girl called Eve who's a bit of a mechanic and tech head who finds the ruins of an android on a scrap heap and shenanigans ensue. I would have gone straight for Tank Girl makes Blade Runner. That would have filled it all up quite Yeah, nicely. Tank Girl was a big visual inspiration for Evie for sure. Ah. Oh, well, there's an interesting question right off the bat, short-circuiting the process that I had. Uh, your media inspirations in terms of genre shows and uh, comic books and so on? I mean, for this particular work or just in general? No, just in general. We always like to find out where people are coming from. Uh, I mean, at the moment where my wife and I are watching Altered Carbon, which is kind of a Ah. cyberpunk, dark future-esque show on Netflix. Uh Um, We just finished watching season two of The Expanse. Uh, we just went and saw Infinity War. I mean, I've been a comic book reader since I was probably 12 years old. I started on Marvel and then moved into kind of Vertigo. Uh-huh. Uh, Neil Gaiman, Sandman was a big influence on me. Uh, and I was also kind of an old school, golden era sci-fi boy. Uh, so kind of William Gibson and Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein. Um, 
I can see the Gibson influence, particularly in this. Um, I actually named a sh- one of the ships. There's a there's a city called Armada, which is made mm-hmm. entirely of kind of landlocked watercraft, uh, and one of the ships in there is called the Gibson. That's yes, kind of is. my homage to William. Yeah, I'm a yeah. big fan. Um, Neuromancer was probably one of the most formative works for me in terms of my writing and my writing style as well. Mm-hmm. Gibson was a big influence. Um, yeah, I was just trying to think. Oh, yes. Was it was that in the tanker section of the um, yeah, murder? Yeah. yeah, the tanker that uh, the, the Gibson Street Ministry is found on. It's, yeah, it's called the Gibson. And that's yeah. me just giving a little wave to William. This is a, a heavily cyborged, robotic, androided book. Uh, do all, I mean, are we, we're really past the stage where we even question that um, all science fiction set in the near future is going to have to take account of robotics and AI development. Sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're currently developing technology now that allows people to interface with machines. I saw a, a video on YouTube the other day of a man interfacing via troads at his temples with a prosthetic arm that he'd had implanted. Mm. Uh, and, you know, artificial intelligence is a growing and burgeoning industry. There was that great story last year from Facebook where... Two chatbots started talking to each other in a butchered version of English that the programmers didn't understand. Uh, and the artificial intelligence behind Google Translate also invented its entire, entirely its own language, uh, which it translates all incoming data into and then translates from into the language that you want to hear. So. And, and although it's a bit of an urban myth and it's far more complicated than people generally allude to in popular fiction, the, the Turing test where you can... Um, uh, talk to a computer in another room or on a telephone and not know that you're talking to one. Yeah. Uh, Google was unrolling that the other day where you could uh, make a phone booking with a hairdresser, I think it was, and, oh, yeah. and you just never... The, the the people on the other line had no idea. Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there was that great story about... Um, I can't remember who developed it, but there was a, a, essentially a human simulation called Sweetie uh, that was being used to as part of a sting operation against pedophiles as well mm. um, and that was virtually indistinguishable from a human being you know in a, in a low resolution environment anyway so although they're not doing it the same way you know they're not doing it in the same way that, that to meet where would do it that a human being would do it there's massive it's basically mining data massive amounts of data being thrown out. Right, yeah, machine learning. Yeah, yeah Pred- so it's not quite the same. No, but... It I mean, doesn't have to be. No, we're writing science fiction here. It doesn't have yeah. to be yeah. purely fact. <laughs> There's a little bit of, yeah, conceit involved in every great work of science fiction. One of my favourite characters in this story is the Blitzhound Kaiser. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a basically a mechanical hound, shades of Fahrenheit 451. Yep. Which can be tasked as a companion, as it is indeed for the character of Eve in this. So it's a, a very faithful and loyal cyborg because it does actually have a, an organic component. Yeah, there's, there's about six inches of a spinal cord uh, and real dog brain inside an armoured combat chassis. So it's essentially a cyborg in the truest sense of the word, but its body is entirely mechanical and also explosive. They're kind of assassin dogs. I had pictured it as different um, until I read the bit, got to the bit where it said uh, the fur had worn off a long time ago and they camouflage painted it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, the idea was you would use these dogs that, you know, they would look like real dogs to begin with and you would set them on the, task, the path of a person you didn't like and when uh-huh. they reach you, they kind of explode. But uh, Evie and her grandmother, uh, grandfather, beg your pardon, have repurposed it to be more of, yeah, kind of a friendly puppy dog still with a 
bit of high-tech explosive inside it. And she gets very attached to it too. I mean, apart from the um, the obvious uh, utility of having an attack robot dog uh, by your side, she uses it well past when um, you'd think that otherwise she would have just abandoned it as a machine. And so obviously uh, she's become very fond of it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of at the heart of the story. Eve also has a relationship with another robot called Cricket who he kind of serves as her robotic conscience almost oh. um, and one of the big questions of the book is you know if a machine is programmed to be affectionate to you if a machine is essentially programmed to love you does that make the love any less real just oh. because it's a programmed impulse I mean evolutionarily speaking mothers are kind of hardwired to love their babies the moment they lay eyes on them fathers as well um, that doesn't make the love any less real simply because it's compelled by evolution or programming or biology so that's kind of one of the questions at the heart of the book I feel like an idiot because it's just twigged. I've just twigged on something. <laughs> um, Pinocchio is obviously a, a fairly significant um, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, uh, inspiration for any book that deals with um, androids and robots who in some respects are aspiring to become real boys and real people. Sure. And your little robot conscience is called Cricket. Called Cricket, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, part two of the book Head is also... desk. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, it's not, it's not meant to be super obvious, but if you pick up on those kind of cues in the book and get a little more out of it, then that's great. I, I don't want to hang up too much of a signpost on it. But, yeah, Pinocchio was a big influence on the book. I think part two of the book is called The Terrible Dogfish, which was the name of the sea monster that swallowed Geppetto in the original versions of Pinocchio, which are really quite dark. The Disney movie really brightened things up. Um, I think Pinocchio actually killed Cricket in the fairy tale version. Um, Cricket tried to counsel him on the way he should be conducting his life and I think Pinocchio threw a shoe at him or maybe a brick and killed him pretty quickly whereas yeah, Disney made him a recurring character. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're kind of halfway between the Disney version and the darker fairy tale side of things. I did like Eve's um, uh, friend, just her name, Lemon Fresh. <laughs> Lemon Fresh, yeah, she's probably my favourite character in the whole book actually. She's a lot of fun to write um, and once you, once you get through book one because this is part of a trilogy, uh, you'll see kind of where I'm going with her as a character as well. She's, yeah. she's more than meets the eye. Well, at the, at the moment, yes, there are um, moments in the story early on where there's suggestions that there's something going on there. Uh, for the moment, though, in the book it reads, she's the sidekick appropriately. Yeah. Uh, and also the... See, you can see, all in all, whenever you read a story, you can always pick out the, um, the mechanics of it um, if you've been reviewing long enough. Um you know, so you've got the hero, the hero's side. It's very Joseph Campbell. Yeah, it? yeah, archetypical. The hero's sure. sidekick, the uh, the conscious like small robot, the android love interest. Yep. <laughs> which I thought was actually an interesting turn of events. Um, the mentor, the grandfather. Yeah. You know, and so all of my mentors tend to be old men dying of cancer. I've noticed that's kind of a recurring <laughs> motif in my books, which is really strange because my. Mentaro actually got killed by vicious monkeys rather than cancer. But, yeah, it's something that seems to occur in all my books and I have no idea why. Do I need to go there? No, I was taking taking the mickey. You taking didn't get killed by monkeys at all. Yeah. I didn't really have a mentor figure. I, I was careful there, I thought. <laughs> uh, no. Just in case it was a sensitive topic of conversation. Yeah, could. No, could no one be. got killed by attack monkeys. It's okay. Perhaps I should. That would make an interesting story. <laughs> So when you've got this mix, um, I'm curious about the uh, your, your process here. Do you come up with the characters first and then find a story for them to tell or the other way around? 
It usually depends on the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, Life Like Starter is a book that I was writing back in 2010. Um, so when you're a baby author uh, and you get yourself your literary agent and you go out on submission, which is where your agent tries to sell your book to publishers and hopefully get it published, yeah. the advice that you get from everybody is pretend like that's not happening, that the impulse is to just sit at your computer checking your email and clicking refresh every 30 seconds in hopes that good news comes in. But... You're supposed to actually pretend like it's not happening and the advice that everyone gives you is go away and write another book. So Lifelike was the book that I was working on while The Lotus War was on submission. And back then I was I was enamoured of steampunk as a genre. So initially Lifelike started as a story that was set in 1917 post-revolutionary Russia and somehow in between the three years when I started working on it and when I actually genuinely started making it into a book it somehow transformed to post-collapse United <laughs> States uh, set kind of 50, 60 years from now so I'm not sure how I got from one to the other but one of the only things that survived that transition was the dog Kaiser because he was named after Kaiser Wilhelm who was the head of G- German head of state back in 1917 uh, and the names of these androids that were initially called lifelike in that huh. original version and that's kind of the only thing that has survived. There's There's a there's a subtext and a, of kind of Anastasia uh, collapse of the Romanov family oh, yeah, uh, yeah, in yeah. the backstory of the book as well. But yeah, yeah it was a pretty radical transformation. But that, that was where this book started. It started with the idea of artificial humanoids in Russian revolutionary times. Uh-huh. Um, and somehow over the course of three years, it became something completely <laughs> different. Um, well, Nevernight Never started with me watching a drunken conversation between two of my female friends on New Year's Eve and that conversation sparked a thought. I went away and wrote that scene and by the end of writing that scene I wanted to find out more about the characters in it. So that was where the Nevernight series began. And Illuminae began as a dream that Amy had that she and I wrote a book together and the book was written entirely in email format. We didn't know what the book was going to be about but we went away and dissected that question and asked ourselves why would two people be talking via email the answer was they had to be physically separated and us being two sci-fi nerds we put them on two different spaceships and put a plague on one and a crazy artificial intelligence on the other so the two could never actually meet another AI yeah yeah another AI yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a recurring when, when I read the Illuminae the first book in the series one of the things that I really liked about it you guys were using um, concrete basically visualizations of words to uh, go with particular scenes so there would be a, a space battle that would be set out on the page as if it were tactical yeah with the typography moving yeah. like the ships would yeah that was that was our attempt to break the idea of what a book could be you must have had to work really close with the um, the typesetters and the, the book designers to do that yeah I'm, I'm an art director by trade I used to be an art director for a living uh, kind of worked in advertising agencies for 12 or 13 years so a lot of the time in that first book at least it was quicker for me to actually do the design myself and send it in and uh-huh. get them to sharpen things up rather than try and articulate verbally or through email what we wanted but the designers we were working with got better at it and the work became more intuitive as we went along. But oh. I was pretty heavily involved in that first one. Yeah, it just stood out. It's not something I'm I'm used to in, in more recent books. But, um, uh, yeah, I thought the uh, Illuminae series was fine science fiction. Um, and I, th- I think uh, because you've done epic fantasy and that's a, a long science fiction saga, uh, is there any sign that... Um, 
that uh, LifeLink will uh, LifeLike will turn into a um, a longer series as well. Uh, it'll be a trilogy. A trilogy at least. Trilogy. So I've written book two already and handed that in a couple of months ago to my editor, and I'll be working on book three later this year. Uh, but I've got a pretty definite story arc. I know where things are going and sure. how things are going to end. Um, so, yeah, it'll be three books. Hmm. I can make some guesses, but I won't because that might spoil things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty spoilery book, and I'm very grateful that early readers haven't haven't gone out of their way to spoil everybody else's fun because there's, there's a lot of twists kind of towards the back third of the book. Oh, Thanos demands your silence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, we... Yes, I, I went to see it for my fourth time on the weekend. Fourth time? Fourth time. Wow, um, you really like it. I do. I'm a Marvel fan. I'm a Marvel fan as well. Uh, and I thought it was a really interesting choice to make it about, I mean, it's essentially Thanos' story. It's a villain's it story. I actually sat there this time and tried to see it from his perspective, Yeah, which is quite easy to do. Yeah. I mean, he is obviously barking mad, but... Completely insane, you can, but yeah. You can watch it from that perspective. You can see the logic at work. He's, I think he's probably the best Marvel villain they've done so far. Most mm. of them tend to be kind of caricatures. Loki is an interesting one, but he's not quite so, a villain. He's more an anti-hero in some pieces, but... Some are worse than others. You know, I mean, I think probably the worst one was Christopher Eccleston as the Dark Elf. Oh, that was in Dark World? Yeah, I can't yeah, even remember that That was film. so <laughs> but. but yeah, I thought it was great. I thought there were some really cool turns on mm. the characters that established. I loved Thor's story. He got a little yeah. kind of moments of angst and Rocket Raccoon of all people had to go back to the ship and console him. I thought, yeah, I thought they did some really interesting things with the characters that established. This is Jack Dan, author of Bad Medicine for Zero G. The science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio show on 3 Triple R FM. Rob Jan here. And Megan McHugh. And we're also talking to the author of Lifelike, Jay Kristoff. It's a an Ellen and Unwin. Is this a trade paperback at this stage, Jay? Yeah. It yeah. is. Okay. Sometimes it's hard to work that out and this is a we'll go with look we'll go with cyberpunk that'll that'll give people a kind of a rough idea but yeah i think so robot wars post-collapse post-collapse yeah we're a little bit into um dark angel territory there a little bit i don't remember dark Dark angel Angel? that well at all um jessica alba right jessica alba yeah i think i maybe saw the pilot and didn't go much further oh yeah uh, got cancelled anyway, so okay. ain't nothing to no one anymore. <laughs> you, you were telling me you were watching The Expanse. That's got cancelled too. I did sadly. hear that. Yeah, that was really sad. Although I heard there was a big upswell of kind of fan interest trying to get Amazon to pick it up. I'm not sure whether that was successful or not. There was a hashtag floating around on Twitter, Save The Expanse, and someone apparently hired a plane to fly above <laughs> Amazon's central HQ in Seattle with a big Save The Expanse banner flying behind it. So, yeah, there's someone out there who's always a big fan. <laughs> stranger things have happened... Oh, stranger things have happened because, um, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine got cancelled, a uh, US comedy series, and then a day later, a day later, got picked up by a network. Yeah, right. Just to round it off. Actually, what does this remind me of? Anytime you talk about a cancelled series, a beloved cancelled series, it's usually Firefly. Firefly, yeah. Uh, which reminds me that at the royal wedding, Gina Torres was in the background because oh, really? yeah, she's okay. in she was in suits yeah Megan Markle and those are in, and I'm thinking anytime Gina Torres from Firefly shows up somewhere I'd be checking that there isn't a heist being run <laughs> so has anyone looked at the crown jewels in the last 24 hours <laughs> I must admit I didn't see 
a single second of the royal wedding. No, me, me neither. I'm reporting. Yeah. <laughs> I, not that there's anything. I don't, you know. Just, no, no. I don't begrudge anyone their happiness. It just. Yeah, yeah, be happy. Not my thing. No, not mine either. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to the book, Lifelike. Um, I uh, want to drill down a bit into the character of Ezekiel, which is probably not the right way to put it, him being an android. Sure. Uh, he's um, a piece of work. Were you thinking of any particular, uh, like perhaps an inspiration, like a Blade Runner android when you're dealing with him or something more sophisticated? I mean, I wanted to explore the idea of of creating what is essentially an adult person. So these androids are put in adult people's bodies. Mm -hmm. They have all the capacity for emotion that an adult human has, but they don't have the life experience of dealing with those emotions. So it's as if you put a two-year-old's mind inside an adult's body Mm. um, and they're capable of reason and intelligent discourse and whatnot, but they don't really have the length and breadth of experience in dealing with all the emotional input that they have. Um, And so one of the, one of the, selling points in the strap line that we talk about is Romeo and Juliet and we we don't say that to kind of inspire feelings of a grand kind of starstruck romance Romeo and Juliet is it's a tragedy it's not a love story it's about two people who are more in love with the idea of being in love rather Mm. than in love with the person that they actually claim affection for and Ezekiel and Eve's relationship is a little bit like that Ezekiel doesn't really fall in love with Eve for who she is it's she's more conceptual to him um, and similarly, there's a there's another relationship between two of the other lifelikes, Gabriel and Grace, which kind of leads to some. I won't get too far into spoiler territory, but it's one of the the seeds of the downfall of the corporation that created them. So yeah, it's it's more it's more an exploration of destructive, compulsive, obsessive love rather than you know some grand starstruck romance. But yeah, I want I wanted to explore the idea of that kind of responsibility or lack of responsibility, placing so much power and so much capacity for emotion inside a being that doesn't really have the equipment necessary to deal with it. Uh, and I get I get to explore a little more of Ezekiel and how he grows as a character in book two as well, because he is essentially a child in an adult's body in many ways. Yeah. And also the religious references in the character names for the for the uh, lifelikes. Yeah, um, Paradise Lost was another big inspiration in terms of uh, uh, building the Monrover Corporation, the the Gnosis Corporation. I think I called it. Um, unfortunately, there I wanted to name all the lifelikes after angels, but there aren't many female angels uh, in mythology. Uh, so I had to name the female lifelikes after kind of virtues instead. But mm. yeah, there's there's a little bit of a religious subtext in there or not even necessarily a subtext but Paradise Lost was a source of inspiration the idea of um, you know that it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven that these creatures are essentially created in bondage they are servitors they are better they are faster they are stronger they are more intelligent than the humans who created them and yet they're compelled by their programming to serve beings who are ultimately inferior to them. Uh, <laughs> Shades of wrath of Khan. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Paradise Lost is is essentially yeah one of the inspirations of the fall of Babel and the yeah. lifelike revolt. Yeah. <laughs> um, you used a word, a, t- a technical term earlier on that I just thought I'd underline: uh, strapline. Strapline, yes. Yeah, you just use that casually and you thought everybody will understand that. Yeah, right. I mean, that's my marketing background. I used, mm. I used to work in advertising. I, I was an art director for 12 or 13 years, like I said. So for those of you who don't know, 
I, I kind of had a job like Don Draper in Mad Men. I wasn't, I wasn't cheating on my wife and I wasn't an alcoholic <laughs> and I look nothing like John Hamm, but other than that, I'm exactly Everything like Don Draper. Everything else exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I kind of wrote stories for a living. Um, television commercials are essentially stories in kind of a 30-second block. So inadvertently, that was a really good background in becoming a novelist and also, strangely, a co-author um, because if you're in a creative team, you tend to be two people in a room. There'll be a copywriter and an art director and you sit and bounce ideas off each other all day. Uh-huh. And strangely enough, that's exactly what you do when you're a co-author as well. So my 12 and 13 years working in advertising were, unbeknownst to me, a really good proving ground for becoming a co-author. But yeah, strap, strap line is, yeah, it's, it's marketing jingo. It's, it's the byline. It's the summary of the book or the movie in kind of one sentence, the elevator pitch that makes you want to go out and buy it or see it. Uh-huh. Yeah, like the um, the catchphrase or yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the Good. slogan. I'm not sure what regular people would call it. Actually, I mm. guess the slogan. I think we needed to uh, to 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 go back and, and grab that because occasionally people are listening to the podcast and think, what was that? No idea what that no person is talking yeah. about. Yeah. So uh, we've got um, lifelike. Uh, how does it work out to be lifelike? One K, three. Well, the one is an I, and the three I, is an E. Three is an it's an kind e. of bleat backwards. Speak. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Did you have? Um, were you thinking in in your graphic designer mode for that? Yeah, a little bit. And and the number thirteen is not insignificant in the story. Uh, um, but to oh. talk about that is to kind of get spoiled. Yes. So. Yes. Oh, see, this is where I can um, spoil myself for a change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see all the things that I hid in there. Okay. Well, all right. Thank you very much for coming in today. This has been a, an interesting exploration of some of the uh, darker sides of the future, but also a little bit uplifting as well because it is, it, I, it's kind of a young adult novel. Yeah, it is. Um, it's definitely young adult. Um, uh, it's skewed towards young adult. And, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be the kind of author who puts too much gloom and doom and gloom on the future. I think there there is definitely an uplifting message in there. Yeah. It's it's you know, the warning of one potential future we could be heading towards if we don't take care. Um, and the family side of it, and it is a family really, even if not everybody is actually physically related. Um, some of them are machines. Uh, some of them are people. Some of them are combinations of both. The feeling that this this group working together are a family, I feel, is very strong. I feel yeah. it's a tight-knit little organisation. even Lemon's friendship is really at the heart of the story and mm. kind of at the heart of the series as well. Um, yeah, I, I ha- hadn't seen that done much in Young Adult, um, kind of a positive girl-girl relationship that's uh-huh. purely platonic. Um, but, yeah... Eve and Lemon are at the heart of the story, the way the events in book one kind of change their relationship and who they become. Like you say, Lemon in book one is more of a sidekick, kind of comedy relief character. In, in book two, through events, she's forced to step up into a more kind of heroic role. So oh. exploring those two girls and the way they bounce off each other is really at the heart of the book and the source of fun for me. I also found that, uh, I was actually wrapping up there, but I found something more that I <laughs> wanted to talk about. Um, I also found the, uh, the relationships between the machines uh, is interesting too because 
there are varying levels of cyborgs in this and, and, and plain robots and, sure. uh, and the more sophisticated androids. Uh, there's a, a bounty hunter in this who's actually, my sadly to say, my favourite character. Uh, he's one of my favourite as well. I like, <laughs> I like an interesting villain, uh, a villain that has more to him than just moustache-twirling evil. And he's, he's called Preacher um, and he's a, an entirely lethal sort of high survivability character. Yeah, um, more metal than meat. Yes, uh, and it did actually remind me not of the character preacher in the Garthenas comics, but of the um, of the uh, the gunslinger in Dark Tower. Yeah, no, no, in uh, in in Preacher, there's a gunslinger. Oh, sure, right, yeah, yeah, yeah so. uh, he he was actually pretty heavily inspired by the gunslinger in Dark Tower ah, as well. Okay, but my visual for him was I don't know if you guys have seen a really old 80s vampire movie called Near Dark. Catherine of Bigelow directed it, yeah. Of course. So Jesse, Lance Henriksen's character <laughs> in, in Near Dark was kind of my visual cue for him. My, the, my big takeaway from that movie was I loved the uh, the vampire procedural because I, I just liked the efficient way that the vampires would cover the van windows with plastic and yeah, duct tape. Yeah, yeah, alfoil, yeah. yeah the idea of redneck vampires was just really cool. Usually they're sophisticated creatures living in vast gothic mansions and no, guys well, in near dark work. Well, we spent several years with the True Blood people. Oh, yeah, sure. Just plain folks, <laughs> vampires <laughs> yeah. a lot of the time. Okay. Well, thank you, Joe, for coming in today. And I'd like to thank um, uh, our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, and Jessica Seaborn at uh, Alan and Unwin as well. For she does an amazing job. She has indeed. And she has brought us together with Jay Christoph with his new book, Lifelike, which is from Alan and Unwin. What's the title of the second one? Have you got the title? I haven't yet? revealed it yet. We'll probably reveal it later in the year. I think I'd change that. That's, that's too long for a title for a book. It's too obscure. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> We're into Deadpool mode here. All right, thanks a lot. Anytime is a good time to subscribe to Triple R. Not only are subscribers filled with the warm and fuzzies by being a part of the Triple R family and keeping the station on air, there are a great bunch of benefits available too. Subscribers can flash their card all over Melbourne to receive hundreds of discounts on movie tickets, music and music gear, bikes and bike repairs, art supplies, home, personal and professional services, pets, vets and health, food and drink and a whole lot more. For the full list of subscriber discounts and more information on subscribing, head to rrr.org.au. Triple Hello, I'm Peter Hamilton, author of the Night Storm Trilogy and the Greg Mandel science fiction novels. When I'm down under, Rob Jan lets me fly the Starship Zero-G on 3 Triple RFM. Actually, just between you and me, food's not all that good and the cabins are a little on the cramped side, but hey, I cut my teeth on science fiction conventions so I can't complain. Actually, I want to complain, but Rob won't let me the black-hearted tyrant. What's that you say, Mr. Hamilton? This is Mutiny. Back in your boxer, I'll have you keel-hauled without a spacesuit. Aye, Captain. <sighs> Zero G. It doesn't get any better. It just gets over. And here we are. We're not over yet. Exactly. Still got 20 minutes. We have. And we'll fill that with wading into the pool. Mm. Yes. Wilson! Deadpool 2. Doesn't have a subtitle. Doesn't have a strap line. No, Does I feel it? like we should just curse throughout the whole review. It's very, uh, but we won't. That's we all. Won't. That's all I've actually written in my notes. That's just you know, um, a lot of um, asterisks, yes. and <laughs> expletives, and yeah. percentage signs, and <laughs> exactly <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. Well, 
Deadpool 2. Mm-hmm. When, we talk, when, when did science fiction default to superhero movies all the time? Yeah, true. Sometime around about the uh, opening, about 10 years ago, with the opening of Iron Man number one, I guess. Uh, it's a superhero film directed by David Leitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, script by Rhett Reese, Paul Vernick and Ryan Reynolds, whose name I would dearly love to hear Scooby-Doo pronounce <laughs> because it would mean nothing at all. Uh, David Leach is a stuntman, stunt coordinator and also done a lot of second unit directing for Captain America Civil War, mm-hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Out of the Shadows and Jurassic World. And I think he was an uncredited director on the first John Wick movie. And also he directed the short Film, which is really an advertisement for this Deadpool. Deadpool, no good deed, gone with Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. Stan Lee doesn't actually get a cameo in this one, really, but he does sort I of. I still think he does. He sort, sort of, of does, yeah. Oh, he was also the, uh, not Stan Lee, but David Leach, the director of Atomic Blonde. Yes, I was going to say. Um, uh, that kind of shows too. Yeah, I think so. I think that um, Deadpool sends up the genre so effectively. The films kind of exist for me in a dystropic alternate comic book universe. Yeah, I think it's a it's a film for fans. Mm-hmm. I also think it's a film for people who um, are very aware of what's happening in superhero films and all of that right now and are happy to raise an eyebrow and laugh at it and, you know kind of have fun with it as well. It actually reminds me a little bit of um, James Gunn, um, his superhero movies that he did before he did Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. A little bit anarchic, a lot anarchic actually. (laughs) There's nothing that's archic at all about Deadpool. And it's very meta, like there's a lot of breaking of the fourth wall and... It's actually like an... There's so many meta references in it. It's it's like a Tarantino movie. Yeah. Well, I, would, I wouldn't even say it's like... I think they sort of do things a bit differently. Like, I think with Deadpool it's just more explicit. It's not like an mm. homage. He just... They, they say direct comments or make direct jokes that break the wall between it being a movie mm. and it being a commentary on... Superhero movies? Well, this is actually very familiar to superhero comic book fans because, I mean, you know, there are so many ones that are like that that do break the fourth wall mm. or outside of the panels, so yeah. to speak. Uh, She-Hulk was quite famous for that. Uh, Squirrel Girl does the same thing. Uh, and it, it, to me, it, it's just one big Easter egg if the Easter egg was full of blood. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't... I also don't know... It's probably because I can't think of it right now, but movies where it has, it plays such a, like, it's so liberal with the mix of actor and character. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, Ryan Reynolds is sort of a character in this as well. And, you know, there's just all these little nods around, um, I don't know, I just think it's, it's, the lines are so blurred and I think that's what makes it so fun. Given that uh, Ryan Reynolds played Green Lantern in that DC movie and had his lips sewn together as Deadpool in that Wolverine movie, we're actually really lucky to have him playing any superhero, let alone the character that he was clearly destined to bring to the screen. I think he's perfect for this. Um, The only other one I've heard of, a casting suggestion back in the day, was Bruce Campbell could play Deadpool. And I thought, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I think they have that same Mm. jokester energy. 
He is perfect here, perfectly imperfect as Deadpool is. Um, he, I know Ryan Reynolds has problems with the actual Deadpool makeup that they wear. He wears under the mask, and there's a lot more of him in this, from what I remember, yeah. in that makeup than in the first film. Because yeah. in the first film, there's a lot of his normal face and a lot of him in the Deadpool mask. Mm. This, there's probably just as much of him without the mask as it is with him with it on. See, that makes me just laugh just thinking about the various ways they he, he has of uh, making the eyes go white in the mask. Yeah. For example, like smoking a cigarette and then sucking the smoke into the mask. Or um, The mask is a character in itself in some ways. Throwing a bomb of cocaine in under the mask. <laughs> So you know Ryan Reynolds, he's he actually we actually he actually doesn't need. It's a bit of a disservice to such a fine character to say, well, okay, moving on from him. But mm. you know he's there. He's perfect in this. Uh, Josh Brolin plays <gasps> Cable. I just really am loving Josh Brolin doing superhero stuff. This is his year. I think that character is cool and he's perfect. Uh, well, the realization of Cable, who's like a time traveling kind mm, of Terminator y, um, yes. Yeah, Michael Bean. Yeah, kind yeah. of half man, it, half machine. It's it's actually toned down from the comic books. Like in <laughs> that's the comic toned down. That's toned <laughs> down. Like in the comic books he's is this he's usually got a lot more ordnance strapped mm. to him and a lot more pouches too. Yeah, right. Which they didn't make a joke <laughs> of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so because it was a thing back in, uh, in certain eras in comic books where suddenly all of the characters started having lots of pouches strapped to them. You know, and it just multiplied like you have... Cargo shorts era. <laughs> pouches on pouches on pouches and, you know. So D- D- Cable is a bit like that. I think he plays it um, note perfect for Cable, mm. um, which is a little bit like um, Sergeant Rock from the... <laughs> from another universe or uh, a little bit like an early Nick Fury, with, even without one eye, actually. Uh, he is cybernetically enhanced. Um, so, you know, there is that Terminator thing. And this weird sort of relationship between Cable and Deadpool sort of goes, comes into being in this movie. Uh, it is a time travel story um, and I can't really tell you too much about it because I'd have to go back and, and slap myself around if <laughs> I gave anything away. Um, it's an it's not entirely – it is, I suppose, yeah, it is, it, this story is an existential crisis for Deadpool um, and those around him, uh, which is a basis of a good story. Mm. Um, but then it gets twisted way out of whack by the whole Deadpool thing. Um, the other element that comes into it is, and you can see Megan's going, yes, you're skirting around some spoilers yes. there. <laughs> uh, another element that comes into it is uh, Julian Dennison plays a character called Russell and uh, he's a mutant and there's a reason for why he's important to the plot. And we also know him as Ricky from yeah. Hunt of the, the Wilder People. Yeah, so. Uh, and as they actually make a point of saying, um, how many plus-size superheroes do you see? Mm. Or supervillains. This yeah. character could go either way. Uh, and I thought he was excellent in this. Yeah. I, I would have actually liked to have seen him do more. I think so, but I think it was a good... Amount. I think that all the characters that were introduced in this, and there was a fair amount. Oh, so many. Um, were all good. Uh, Zazie Beats. That's a great name. Yeah. Zazie Beats plays Domino. Great character. Great character. Uh, her. Well, give her superpower is that she's very lucky. <laughs> and they use that so well. 
Uh, Zazie is a series regular in the comedy drama show Atlanta. Ah. I think I actually saw her on screen in a movie in Geostorm, though, that um, oh. Weather-watching movie. Uh, <laughs> we've watching. got the return of um, Vanessa, uh, mm-hmm. Blind Al... Uh, the bar owner Weasel, mm-hmm. uh, an actor who's in real life in a bit, quite a bit of trouble actually at the moment. Uh, Dopinda, the cab driver. Yeah. <laughs> who's actually really great in this. I thought he's yeah. terrific. Shout out to my personal cab driver today. <laughs> <laughs> got <laughs> Thank, you here on got time. Got me here on time. Uh, Negasonic Teenage Warhead returns, as does Colossus. And they also finally answer, because every time Deadpool drops into the uh, uh, X-Men mansion, there never seems to be anyone around who's not con- contractually obliged to be in this film. Yeah. They do get into that in this one. Uh, we also have Terry Crews from Brooklyn Nine-Nine appearing mm-hmm. as a character, Bedlam, I think. Um, there's so many cameos in this. I was opening them up like Alan Tudyk from Firefly. Yeah, so, I'd be, yeah. So there we've uh, not – he never actually meets Morena though, unfortunately. Uh, Matt Damon, Brad Pitt – um, Bill Skarsgård. Yeah. Lewis Tan from the Iron Fist series. And um, Jack Keyes, who I remember as the master from the, um, the uh, Del Toro, The Strain. Mm. So, you know, there's all these people vibrating around in the background. And it's done, I think, there's a couple of really scenes that stood out to me quite a lot where they're just having fun with it. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't know, it's just cool. It's just funny. I just laughed a lot. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and and there and as we said, it's so meta and there's so many Easter eggs in this. Just one <laughs> Deadpool's katanas. Um, they're called B and Arthur after the um, the actresses in the Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> really like and that. it's Deadpool who's a fan of that that, that series. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, there's just so much in this to watch. I couldn't possibly um, pick all of it out. One of the things that cracked me up is the Celine Dion track. There's so much in the uh, the soundtrack in the yeah. music. Yeah. Uh, and you're obviously going to stay till the end of the credits anyway. Yeah. Because there are scenes there that are absolutely vital. I'd say they're, very, they're some of the highlights in some ways. And, and actually uh, so important to the Fox <laughs> X-Men universe anyway. Yeah. Uh, and also you get some nice isolated reprises of music that was in the um, in the show, but uh, yeah. sound effects and, and, and dialogue kind of make them submerge a bit, but we can hear them isolated in the end, so it's worth staying for that too. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Dead, Deadpool demands you stay, you know, and presumably go and get some chicka... Chicky Chicky Changas in the um, in the lobby afterwards, you know the uh, the taco burrito. Chimichangas. Chimichangas. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I've never eaten one, so I don't know. It be. I think it's like a deep fried burrito from. And what about this um, um, character called Yukio, who's a little bit like Mantis in her naivety? Yeah, yeah. She was a nice addition, also because I think this is a very diverse. Diverse is not the right word, I don't think. But it's just a very inclusive cast as well. Yeah. Um, yes, they've, they've, they've done quite well. And they also, not only do they do, I mean, not only do they actually go to the trouble of creating quite, quite a bit of an ensemble in here, um, X-Force, mm. um, but they also turn that trope on its head as I, well. There were some scenes where I, yeah, I cackled with glee. Yeah. And the person who I was seeing it with, there's a couple of things that were said that we both cackled with glee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And, yeah, I think you get a lot out of it. If you, Especially, you know, we go to the Marvel films and we discuss them and we love them, but sometimes it's fun to go and then have just see something silly where they kind of poke fun at different things. Yes. I mean, rightfully they poke fun at Batman versus Superman. But, yes. <laughs> um, well... And I think how yeah. do we how do we rate this one in out of the zero G of yeah nah maybe I'm a yeah I I, I will go with um, I need to put some expletives in front of that um, uh, and I can't type it <laughs> you know so it has to be like uh, um, science fiction ones that people can live with like fork yeah <laughs> <laughs> I also think it's probably in my opinion as good as the first movie yeah but. Obviously, and this is something that I think holds for something like Guardians of the Galaxy, Deadpool 1 was so good because it was unexpected. Yeah. Um, I think this movie is just as good, but obviously it will never be perceived as good because we kind of already have expectations around what we want from a Deadpool movie. Yes. But I think quality-wise it's as good as Deadpool 1. Yeah, I think so too. Mm. And that's always remarkable that they can manage to push forwards. And they're lucky too because the way you approach it, if there are plot holes or whatever, you just make a joke about it and move on. Like I think the approach to it is is tone perfect in my opinion. <laughs> so, um, yes, highly recommend. And I also think it will be interesting to see how things fall. I mean, Solo's out this week. Avengers is still out. I think Black Panther is still showing in some cinemas. Um, and, yeah, of course, Deadpool, Deadpool 2. So I think it will be interesting to see how Solo goes with the cinema already being quite highly full of these blockbusters. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll probably have to see Avengers again next weekend anyway. So. <laughs> uh, oh, and speaking of Marvel movies, uh, Kevin Fahey, the Uber producer, oh, yes. has let slip that Ms. Marvel mm. as a movie oh, is great. in the works too, one of my favourite uh, uh, Marvel comic characters, Kamala Khan. Nice. Um, so look out, Joyzy. Yeah. Ms. Marvel may be coming at you. Obviously after um, Captain Marvel, mm. which is a different character. Yeah. Although Captain Marvel was once called Ms. Marvel. Um, uh, I did watch Doctor Strange again over the weekend. Oh, yeah. And I personally, I really still enjoyed it quite a lot. Okay. But I think I enjoyed it more first watch than you did. Yeah, kind probably of anyway. did. But um, Magic? Yeah. Not necessarily my thing. Although there is um, an amazing cosplay uh, set up where um, you can buy um, uh, uh, holographic fans, you know, mm. that um, you, you yeah, project like the hologram the, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but you can use, these are big enough to use as Doctor Strange cool. magic juju. Yeah, you know? nice. Awesome, huh? Magic juju. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, mojo juju. Um, so, yeah, that's a quite incredible. All right, now, uh, that's about it for Zero G yeah. for today. And Joe Brunetti coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. This has been a podcast oh. from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly oh. independent community radio. Want to hear oh. more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.